Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. On today's tremendous panel, making her politicology debut is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's successful campaign and ran his inauguration. She has also worked on the past three DNC national conventions and is the youngest individual to ever serve as president of the convention. Over the last decade, Liz has worked on presidential, Senate, and gubernatorial campaigns across the country. Welcome to the show, Liz, and happy birthday. Thanks, Ron. Can't imagine a better way to be spending my birthday. (laughs) Thank you. And returning to the roundup is a political strategist and our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, co-founder and former advisor to the Lincoln Project and a former political director of the California Republican Party, politicology fan favorite, Mike Madrid. Welcome back, Mike. It's great to be with you. I'm a little intimidated by Liz's resume there. (laughs) On this week's Roundup, Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress, how he sold his infrastructure plan and the history made sitting right behind him, the FBI's raid of Rudy Giuliani's apartment, what it means and what it doesn't mean, and the return of Trumpist co-conspirators to public life and even political office. And in our exclusive segment for Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at the disinformation cycle that had conservatives melting down this week over two completely fabricated stories, one about red meat and the other about Kamala Harris's book. Let's begin with Biden's speech last night. On Wednesday night, Biden delivered his first address to a joint session of Congress. As expected, the president highlighted the massive achievements of his administration in the battle against COVID-19. And we also heard the president reiterate the need for massive investments in our economic infrastructure. So before we dig into uh, the substance uh, and, you know, the crux of Biden's speech, which, you know, was a pretty effective sales pitch for for his infrastructure proposals, I thought, I wanted to get your reactions, Liz, and then Mike, what stood out to you on Wednesday night? Yeah, I think the president did um, a pretty amazing job at doing what he does best last night, right, which is talk about very big ideas and very, um, for the most part, plain speech. And so I think it was a very um, easy to understand uh, rendition of his accomplishments, to your point. Um, I think the everyday American uh, tuning in, though, as a political operative, I always wonder how many everyday Americans are (laughs) the ones, in fact, watching. Um, But I think he spoke about it in a pretty easy to understand way. I think he did exactly what he needed to do. Um, so I was I was pretty impressed that he was able to accomplish that goal, I think. Mike, what were your expectations going into the speech? And do you think he got across what he needed to to the American people? And how did it make you feel, policy details aside? Well, one of the truisms about uh, the State of the Union, and this was not a State of the Union, right? It was a joint session of the Congress, is that you really can't screw this up. When you're in this venue and it is just you and half of it tends to be applause lines, and we'll talk about that in a second, you really can't screw up that kind of a speech. I've never seen anybody do a really bad job. Even Donald Trump did, did, did just fine in that venue. But this was pretty extraordinary. The breadth of, I think, what was being proposed was truly remarkable. I mean, the comparisons to Franklin Delano Roosevelt are already being made, at least in terms of the substance mm-hmm. of the policy and the implications, the, the size and the scope of it. But the delivery was quite quite good. And I think one of Joe Biden's strengths, to Liz's point, is 
his ability to kind of communicate in a way where substance is actually digestible for the average American. And I think it was it was it was a longer speech than I expected, but it wasn't so long that you were left like going, God, is this thing going to wrap up or how many more times are these people going to stand up and applause? Um, which takes me kind of to the second point, which is stylistically, I love the fact that there were not that many people in there because <laughs> I didn't have to take three hours out of my day to watch a, a speech where half or 60% of it was going to be, you know, standing ovations. It's like three minute applause lines, right? Yeah. And it's become, it has become so much theater, right? It's become so performative where people are more worried about what the Republicans are standing up and clapping for or not standing up and not clapping mm-hmm. for. That tends to be a little bit more insidery than what the average American, again, to Liz's point, are, are is really consuming. Um, but again, the overall sense is this this was a a a standard presidential address to the nation, which after four years of not having that was kind of a relief. You you did. I did feel like, OK, the guy's on top of it. He's running it. I don't agree with a lot of what he said. I agree with a lot of what he said, but I can go back to, you know, having dinner and dealing with normal stuff. I don't have to worry about you know, him hitting the nuclear button or worrying about what kind of institutions he's about to destroy or, or what militias are gathering up where and when. Yeah. And I think at a certain, at a certain level, I think that that sigh of relief is what is driving the popularity numbers of this president hundred days into this thing. Yeah. And I also think it's worth noting, Liz, that these addresses after a new president is sworn in are typically given, you know, right after inauguration and Biden chose not to do that. What do you make of that? Look, I am, I think his team has been pretty brilliant in their approach in many of the ways in which they have decided to allow him <laughs> to communicate, quite frankly, and, and the the verbiage that they are, you know, again, allowing him um, to say in the way in which he says it and the timing, I think, has been um, pretty masterful on their end. And look, I have been both um, a Biden supporter forever, but also, you know, being someone who has been able to pull back the curtain on the campaign and, and his inner circle, um, I will be critical when it's time. And I really do feel like they made a calculated, a very smart, calculated decision to have him go up there at this time in the way that he did. I think also to Mike's point, um, you know, I think it was after the inauguration that people were like, this was so boring and that was so unbelievably refreshing. Mm. And I think that people um, enjoyed hearing what he had to say because there weren't fireworks. Like he was still able to talk about amazing programming that he wants to um, impose. And he really laid out his vision, but he did it in a way that you also can't really land a punch if you want to stick it to him. Like he spoke so broadly, so eloquently. Um, and I think his team really did a very smart thing in making him, you know, or having him wait this, in this waiting, time. In waiting till yeah. the first hundred days, till, till he had actually some some very real accomplishments to point to, which is what he opened the speech with, right? As a, let, uh, let's absolutely. set the table, look at all the stuff we've accomplished, right? That's right. And I think that you could not have had him, and this is what I would have advised should I have been in, in that circle, you can't go up and address the nation until you have an actual accomplishment to point to with the coronavirus. And I think the way that he was able to get up there and talk about the vaccine accomplishments, I mean, if that was the only thing he got up there and said, um, you know, that too would have been what enough. And yeah. so, yeah, yeah, for sure. So last night, for the first time, there were two women, including a woman of color, seated behind the president for a joint address to Congress. In addition to the historical first, the significance of this was really punctuated when looking at what's actually in Biden's infrastructure plan. 
and who stands to gain the most from some of the provisions. So there is $400 billion for caregiving for aging and disabled Americans by expanding services under Medicaid and improving the wages of home health care workers, which is the largest single line item in the entire proposal. There's also $25 billion to help upgrade child care facilities and increase the supply of child care in areas that need it most. And a few weeks ago, Professor Victoria Soto of the University of Texas joined us to talk about the She Session. Women, particularly women of color, are more likely to work lower paying service jobs, take on child care and elder care responsibilities at home, and they work in the sectors affected the most by the pandemic, such as hospitality. So Liz, given the vast reach of Biden's proposal, and you know, DC is now hotly debating what we should call infrastructure and what we shouldn't call infrastructure. But I'm hoping you can help us sidestep that question because really it's it's the outputs of the legislation that are way more important than the label we put on it. Although I do think it's rhetorically brilliant to to put all of this under an umbrella that we call infrastructure because it helps people rethink Agreed. about right. And and the thing that stood out to me the most. When he started this sales pitch, he reminded everybody of the things that we now take for granted, which are a product of massive government investments at at very at, at that became huge inflection points. We have the internet now as a result of this. We have the uh, we have the highway system and the and the transcontinental railway system, and these are all things that we that that have changed the lives of everyday Americans. Everybody has experienced these changes, and. I thought that was brilliant. And so I want you to sort of help us think through why this is all wrapped together. In other words, why is it important to make investments in things like roads, bridges, water pipes, alongside investments like caregiving? And how does that help our entire economy? Ron, I think it's a great question. And I think I think you have two questions there. You're asking both why yeah, it's important. There's a lot of there, sorry. You, but no, no, no. I, I think even more important is your question of why the decision to wrap it all together? Why are we talking about bridges and also talking about, um, you know, home health services and education? Um, and again, I, I know I'm really patting um, the back of some of these, you know, Biden admin officials and, and some of these really high up uh, staff and operatives, I think they've done a very masterful job thus far pulling together verbiage in a way that will make sense to everyday Americans. And you have to show that all of these things um, are equally important in the Biden administration. I think the decision to do all of this is all about messaging. And again, I think they're doing a really good job saying all of these things have to work together, whether we're talking about potholes and roads Mm -hmm. and the expansion of the highway system or high-speed rail or broadband is equally as important as education initiatives, because if we're not teaching, you know, our young people um, and, and growing them for the economy of the future, are these, um, you know, let's call them traditional infrastructure ideals even going to be possible? So again, I think it is a very smart messaging tactic, and I think it will go a, a very long way. Mike, one of the things Biden does really effectively that we've talked about before is speak directly to the American people. He did that last night when he was talking about the American Jobs Plan. Let's take a listen. Now, I know some of you at home are wondering whether these jobs are for you. So many of you, so many of the folks I grew up with feel left behind, forgotten, in an economy that's so rapidly changing. It's frightening. I want to speak directly to you because you think about it. 
That's what people are most worried about. Can I fit in? Independent experts estimate the American Jobs Plan will add millions of jobs and trillions of dollars to economic growth in the years to come. It is a it is a eight year program. These are good paying jobs that can't be outsourced. Nearly 90 percent of the infrastructure jobs created in the American Jobs Plan do not require a college degree. 75 percent don't require an associate's degree. The American Jobs Plan is a blue collar blueprint to build America. That's what it is. So back in September, I think you'll remember we were you and I were doing a state of the vote episode about Pennsylvania, and we talked about uh, the hope gap. And you made this point about the correlation between whether you believe that the future will be better or worse for your children uh, and your political party, right? The connection between those two things. If Biden is speaking directly to people in the Frost Belt or the Rust Belt about creating good paying jobs, how can that impact the hope gap? Well, first of all, it's it's really brilliant language that was used. That segment really captures a lot of this the forgotten man stuff that Donald Trump tapped into with anger and resentment about being left behind. What what Joe Biden is doing here is he's saying there is a place for you and we are making a commitment to you and we are bringing everybody along. Um perhaps most importantly, back to the infrastructure question because I think it's a good setup. Yeah. This redefinition of infrastructure is is actually so smart. I'm surprised the Democrats didn't figure this out 30 years <laughs> a long ago. Time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's all, only six to seven percent of this spending plan, which is I- extraordinarily large, is about bridges and roads. The rest, all of these jobs he's talking about are childcare provider jobs. They're jobs to, to meet this quote unquote infrastructure for pre-K and early childhood development. These are not necessarily college-educated jobs. They're over, overwhelmingly female-dominant, and they're also speaking to this constituency that, that you guys were just referring to. And wrapping it up as infrastructure is really making a case, and this is why I think it's so significant, it's really making the case for big government. Mm-hmm. At a time when Bill Clinton, you know, in the mid-'90s, declared the era of big government dead— Barack Obama in 2009, in his first inaugural, you know, announces the stimulus package, which right or wrong, however you felt about injecting money into the economy, a lot of this money was spent on things like Solyndra and a green economy that never materialized in terms of jobs. This is really a redefinition of both of those. And it's it's extremely significant because Joe Biden was part and parcel of both of those plans. And what he's saying is there is a new economy. And I'm not going to try and send you back and invest and just double down in high tech. I'm not going to just double down in new economy workers because that's the future. We are going to spend in a way where people are at, and we're going to create programs that are, quote unquote, infrastructure, that are building new institutions and government at the local, state, and federal level. And we're going to do it in a way where we are going to overwhelmingly hire people that do not have college degrees that... Never met oh, any yeah. of the criteria that yeah. actually helped in the 2008, 2009 stimulus plan. So it's not just the size of what he's talking about, which is which is kind of revolutionary in its own way, but it's who he's talking to. It's, it really is kind of brilliant. And then it's wrapped yeah. up in this perfect political <laughs> packaging as it infrastructure. It, yeah. And it's like, where, where were these strategists, you know, right. 20 yeah. years ago? Why, <laughs> if, the, if the Democrats had figured this out a long time ago, I think we might have a very different political environment. But it, it's smart. Uh, better late than never. And it really is, I think, um, a, 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 a genius stroke 
for the administration 100 days into this thing. They really get it. You can tell. You can. And you just said something that really struck me, which is that they're spend, he's proposing spending all this money in a way that meets people where they are, not in some imagined uh, scenario that we could create, but actually what's happening now on the ground. I think that's new. Like, it, I, I haven't is, heard a politician talk like that. No, that's right. Because normally a politician, especially a president, his advisors will speak very aspirationally, right? And we as Americans, we love that shit. We eat it up, right? Yeah. It's like Kennedy yeah. saying we're going to go to the moon and Trump is talking about Space Force and Barack Obama's talking about the new world we're going to enter into. And yeah. he's just saying, look, I'm from Scranton. Kids need childcare. Kids need childcare. Let's build infrastructure that supports childcare and we'll yeah. get back into a competitive state by meeting people where they're at, looking at the weakness in our economy, which is completely made bare during the pandemic. Yeah. Who needs help? We're all coming along. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to speak to the 75% of people without a college degree that don't work in Silicon Valley jobs that are simply trying to make it work. And this is yeah. the way I'm going to sell it. Yeah. It, Liz, in other words, I, I saw you nodding. In other words, this is kind of like basically spending in a way that removes the impediments to people that they're currently facing to getting back into the workforce or getting into the workforce in the first time, right? It's, a, it's, it's different from like, here's an incentive to what's, what's in your way? What are your stumbling blocks? How, what's holding you back? And this is really what I think last night was all about. Again, I feel like I'm giving you know so much <laughs> kudos to this <laughs> to this administration, but I really, um, I really do feel like they did a great job in preparing for this moment by saying, "Who is tuning in? Where are these people right now? Where are they at?" To Mike's point, and what is it that they not just want to hear but need to hear? And then it was, "How am I going to communicate it in a way that?" makes sense for them to hear and will really speak to them. I mean, I think it was Ted Cruz who had the reaction that the speech was both radical and boring. Oh, yeah. And oh, it's yeah. like, okay. that to me just shows there's no way of sticking it to this guy right now, to the president, yeah. because he's speaking so plainly and at the same time, so eloquently in a way that makes sense and in a way that is actually going to have a direct impact on people's lives. So you can't really mess with him while he's on this plan. All of that said, it comes down to support and votes in Congress, right? So he could have done a great job last night, which again, I think I've been pretty clear. I think that he did. But how are people going to now vote um, when when it really comes down to making making all of this possible for, yeah. for everyday Americans? And that will be extremely interesting um, to watch. By the way, by the way, radical yeah. and boring is probably the best compliment you could give to this, <laughs> this time. I mean, that's not an strategically, <laughs> that's not an actually, yeah, that's yeah. an accomplishment. Well, speaking really of somebody is. who had no kudos to give, uh, Mike, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina offered the Republican response officially to Joe Biden's speech. Um, and we'll talk more about why Republicans have had trouble getting criticisms against Biden to stick in an upcoming segment. But what did you make of Scott's rebuttal? Will any of it stick? And, you know, do we, what is the what is the use of these rebuttals anymore? In, you know, at all? Why do we do them? Because they like they're always they always seem to be terrible, right? There's, it's always terrible contrast between a, you know a live audience and a, and and being in front of a camera. Like, what's the use of them? Well, I mean, as, as George W. said, this was some weird shit. And I, and I say that, I say that because this is the first time to your point that a rebuttal was not a rebuttal, right? Like 85% of the stuff that he was saying had nothing to do with Joe Biden's speech. 
the idea behind this was trying to give equal time, right? Right. It, right. You, when you do give a president, which is still a requirement largest, under FCC, it's still, it's still yep. a requirement. And I think that the media is like, well, let's just do you know a point counterpoint type of thing. But this was not counterpoint. This was a, a, a whatever you think about Tim Scott and his positions, and I, I agreed with some of it. I disagreed with a lot of it, but the 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 fact that he was not responding at all they're not even trying anymore right does really i think diminish the role of the response there is no way to compete as i was saying earlier with a state of the union or a presidential address to the nation you just can't do it there have been different iterations they've tried to do it like in small farm towns in iowa town hall style they've you know they've, they've tried to do it with people with flags behind them there's just no way to 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 compete with the president's bully pulpit, Marco Rubio, you know, there's a water uh, situation. <laughs> the truth, the truth of the matter, the truth of the matter is, I think what they've recognized strategically is let's just not even try. Let's just go. And he was talking about yeah. his own racial experience at a time when 90% of the speech had nothing. Biden wasn't even talking about this stuff. Right. Um, it, it, it devolved in kind of this, you know, gospel hymnal at the end. And I'm like, you know, they're not even trying what to respond. Doing? Yeah, and it's because the Republican Party is not trying to have a debate on on ideas anymore. They're simply speaking to base and trying to capture that small segment of folks that they lost in this last election cycle and trying to bring them back. It's purely tactical. It's purely strategic. It had nothing to do with the response and the rebuttal. I think we need to rethink the whole notion of giving that kind of time and that kind of a format if they're not even going to be speaking to the issues at hand. There's just no point in it. Yeah, and and. You know, I, for one, would have been interested in hearing uh, some um, alternative ideas to the problems that Biden laid out. And I liked how I thought one of his most effective lines of the speech was, you know, I'm open to hearing ideas, but doing nothing is not an option. And the rest of the world's not waiting for us. I would have loved to hear somebody say, okay, well, we agree with you on what the problem is because the problem is pretty obvious, but there was nothing of substance in, in Tim Scott's response that said, okay, we all agree that we need to, we need to fix some things here. And here's, here's what we think we should do. There was no counterproposal. There was nothing of substance there. Liz, do you, can, do you know who makes the decision about who gives the response? Do you know how that works? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So I think it's typically the national party. Um, I'm pretty sure it's like a DNC or RNC okay. um, decision. Um, I think it also depends on which party um, holds the, or obviously it is the yeah, <laughs> response to the right. opposite party of in the White House. So it really depends, um, you know, how strong the like communications arm is and all of that. But I think it's a national party decision. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure of that. What I thought was interesting was not the substance um, of of Tim Scott's rebuttal, you know, as you both were just mentioning, but I think it was a very, um, it was an interesting political moment because I, knowing who Tim Scott is, you knew that he was going to talk about the former president, mm -hmm. but I think it also would have been really remarkable um, to see if he omitted talking about, you know, yeah. former President Trump. And the fact that he brought him up shows that in the official response of the party to the first joint uh, session address from the new president to talk about the former president, I think that that says enough right there. You know, you could ignore everything else that Tim Scott said and just know that the way in which he still talks about President Trump is just the Republican Party is still very much the party of Donald Trump. And I think he just doubled down on that last night, which he did not have to do because um, it's not that like Joe Biden went up there 
last night and, you know, was talking so much smack about the former president. So Tim Scott and his rebuttal to go to that point, I think that was a very calculated decision. I wasn't surprised by it, but I think it would have gone um, a, a much longer way, um, again, to what constituency, but I think it would have gone a longer way to um, know that he can have made the rebuttal without doubling yeah. down on the fact that they are the party of Trump. Yeah. We also should note, you know, before we leave this topic, that it was enormously popular and well-received by the American people. 85% of speech watchers approved of Biden's speech uh, in a CNN SSRS poll after the speech on Wednesday. 71% of respondents said they felt more optimistic about the country's direction. And 73% said Biden's policy pro proposals would move the country in the right direction. And so maybe the reason we didn't see a substantive response is because what he's proposing is actually just so damn popular. So that seems huge, Ron. Yeah, that yeah. seems really significant, actually. Yeah. So let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. On Wednesday, <laughs> yeah. multiple outlets reported. There's, I got I got a bit of a long lead up here because there's a lot to I want I want to be clear about the legal details. Uh, surrounding this raid, uh, and then and then we'll dig into the politics of this. So on Wednesday, multiple outlets reported that federal agents had executed a search warrant in the Manhattan apartment and office of Rudy Giuliani. As everyone remembers, the former mayor of New York, associate attorney general, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and most recently, President Trump's personal attorney. The Department of Justice has been probing Giuliani for at least two years concerning his activities in Ukraine, including whether he broke lobbying laws for Ukrainian officials back while pursuing an investigation into Trump's political rival, Joe Biden. There's a really good piece in the Daily Beast by Barb McQuaid, who's a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, about what the raid does and doesn't mean. And there are a couple of technical points here that I want to highlight. So a judge has to sign off on a search warrant. So that means that they had to show probable cause. McQuaid also pointed out that the investigation is probably in its advanced stages, and that's why prosecutors are willing to tip their hands. So the search warrant does not necessarily mean Giuliani will be charged with a crime. We just know that there's probable cause that a crime happened and that there was probable cause that evidence was at Giuliani's. We don't know if he is the one who purportedly committed the crime or even what the crime is. It could be the prosecutors have enough evidence to bring charges and this search was a last step before that. Or it could mean that the materials will need to be analyzed before they can make a decision about whether to charge him. But because Giuliani is a lawyer, the court that approves the warrant also had to approve a method for conducting the search that safeguards attorney-client privilege, which means someone or a team of people will have to review the documents before they can go to the investigators and prosecutors working on the case. So since there's this added issue of attorney-client privilege, the DOJ has a particular policy that when a prosecutor wants to obtain a search warrant involving a lawyer, they have to get approval from senior justice officials in Washington. And this is the part that I want to really dig into. The New York Times reported that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan had tried for months to secure DOJ approval to request search warrants for Giuliani's phones and his electronic devices, but that senior political appointees had blocked those warrants. Also, according to the Times, the team in Manhattan was preparing to seek search warrants last summer, but was blocked by Trump's appointees, and they tried again after the election, and they were still blocked. 
So the Department of Justice under Bill Barr denied the request at least two times and may have ousted the U.S. attorney leading the investigation during that process. Um, So I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about the technical legal aspects of this, but I do want to hone in on the role that the political appointees at the Justice Department played in this. So after Barr's Justice Department stepped in to stop prosecutors from obtaining a warrant last summer, Andrew Giuliani, Rudy's son, called the raid yesterday, and I quote, a politicization of the Justice Department. And I'm not making that up. Let's take a listen to what he said. This is absolutely absurd, and it's the continued politicization of the Justice Department that we have seen. And it has to stop. Yeah. Mike, (laughs) how should we be thinking about the actual politicization of the Justice Department under Bill Barr and how Republicans are going to try to message these investigations into wrongdoing under Merrick Garland, the new AG? Well, the best part of this whole saga is going to be seeing Will Ferrell come on Saturday Night Live and playing Andrew Giuliani. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I (laughs) Kate McKinnon still holds the the gold medal for me. Look, this is what we were talking about in the midst of the campaign. It's not what we knew at the 30,000-foot level. It's what we knew we were going to be horrified by what we found out afterwards with a new Department of Justice under a Biden administration. And this is the first step along that road is it's uh, look I, we all know that what we're going to find out yeah. was that the the justice department was doing some bad bad stuff and the fact that now look it, to get to go through all the process that you just outlined yeah this this yeah. Proce- the prosecutors are, don't they're not taking this lightly they know exactly what they're doing they know exactly what the scrutiny is going to bring they know exactly what the blowback is going to be Ironically, this was the department that Rudy Giuliani once headed uh, and, and was as the prosecutorial office and is now going to bring about his and potentially the you know President Trump's ultimate undoing and downfall. Um, that is extraordinarily significant. And I think we are going to be horrified as Americans when we realized just how much the Department of Justice was being used as a weapon for the president of the United States. Um, and again, whether we're shocked or not, we need to be disgusted by it and we need to remain disgusted by it because once we once we accept that as a normal, natural way of governance, there's really no more you know hope for anything beyond a government which is corrupt seamlessly from from top to bottom. There's one other thing I do want to say too, and it's not exactly related, yeah. but the extraordinary downfall of Rudy Giuliani is going. There are going to be many books written about this. There's because yes, to ha- he is the yes. most. He is probably the most tragic, and I'm not. I don't mean that in a sympathetic way, but the tragic collapse of a public servant in the history of this country. If Rudy Giuliani had just gone off and made millions by giving speeches on leadership and running, you know, cybersecurity companies and doing whatever he was doing, New York would have, you know, we. He is probably on par with Fiorella LaGuardia. They would have named plazas after this guy and airports after this guy and put statues of him uh, you know, throughout New York City. Now he is going to be reviled for generations because he has became the embodiment of everything that helped his rise to power, which was the weeding out of deeply ingrained corruption in government. And what we're going to find out is going to be at some level just tragic and from a human perspective, but deeply, deeply disgusting as an American to watch how our government was used as a political cudgel against enemies and to protect deeply flawed and corrupt 
human beings. So well put. Liz, we talk a lot about accountability on this show and how important it is that we see real accountability for everyone who enabled the former guy, as George Conway likes to call him. What's Giuliani's legacy as a Trump enabler? And what do you think accountability would look like for him, should look like for him? I'm so glad um, that we have this topic today because I've heard Mike talk about Giuliani in that way. And I think it just makes so much sense that he could have he could have been right. And and he um, what will become of him now, I think, is is we will tune in and watch. And as you were going through all of that legal jargon, Ron, I was like, I, you know, always think about how do we take all of this again behind the curtain for the normal everyday person. And for me, what is most, um, I'm trying to think of the right word choice. Exciting is not the the right word. Um, But I, yeah, I think what is cathartic is like, you know, bad people shouldn't get away with bad shit. Right. And so it's like, um, you know, I think for the everyday Joe, for them to see that there are consequences for doing the wrong thing. I think for four years under President Trump, that is not something that the American people saw, that if you made a mistake of all levels, small or extremely significant, as we might see here, again, mistake seems like the wrong word choice. It seems very juvenile for, yeah, for what we might be uncovering. Or if you your power, right? It, exactly, exactly, yeah. Ron. And I think for the everyday person to see, okay, there are consequences um, and, and people will be held accountable, I think that message... Um, and again, I know we don't go on FBI raids, you know, to send messages in this country. However, I do think that what it is showing um, will be extremely significant. And I think we'll give um, a lot of folks some some peace that that if you abuse your power, um, you will be held accountable and we will seek you out and we will go after the truth. Because I think uh, four years under President Trump, that was not the norm. Right. And so to see that back again, I, I think is I think cathartic is probably the right word there. To see a functioning Justice Department. Yeah, um, no question. So exactly. Mike, there's, I think because of everything that we witnessed under Donald Trump, the country now knows what it looks like to have a Justice Department that is being used as a weapon, right? We now we now have a model for that in our minds. We know what it looks like, which means we've seen politically motivated investigations. We've seen them being spun as witch hunts. What are the political risks to investigating the potential crimes committed by members of or allies of the previous administration? Um, not to say that they shouldn't be, that, that they shouldn't happen at all, but that, but the optics of this, the politics of this, are are a little bit dicey. Um, if Republicans stick to the witch hunt messaging and the idea that Biden is trying to wield the DOJ against Trump supporters, right, which they are doing and will continue to do, how can that impact the midterm elections? And and just in general, how unhealthy is that for our politics? And and how do we work through that? Well, look, having having prosecutors and even independent counsels has been kind of the the weapon of choice for both parties in, in most of our political yeah. lifetimes, right? This is for, not for good reason. For good reason. This to your point, I think this is this takes it to a whole new level because we know what the Republicans are gonna say. They're gonna say this is all politically motivated. This is they can't get over the fact that I won in 2016. This is about them, you know, trying to find Russian influence and not finding Russian influence. And now they're making it up. And again, they're the 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 base of the Republican Party is more than happy to lap that stuff up and carry it and convey it and and rebroadcast it. 
it's made for this really peculiar media ecosystem. The danger is if there are efforts that go forward under Merrick Garland, under the Biden administration, and there is not hard evidence, um, boy, you breathe a, you breathe a breath of life into this misinformation campaign that has been dis, that's been disseminated and really calcified over the course of the past few years. Yeah. Ha- having said that, and and being a complete layman in all of this, and not having any insight. I'm pretty damn certain they're going to find something. They're, they're acting. They're yes. acting like there's stuff there now. Like yeah. I said, this is not to, to Liz's point. You don't just do FBI raids to do FBI. Yeah, raids. no, we need to like probable cause has been met here. It means a judge has signed off on the likelihood that they will find evidence that is there right now. Right. That's yeah. And if you out. and if you don't believe there's a higher standard with that judge oh, and yeah. the prosecutors going, wait a second, we're not just going after a lawyer. We're going after the president's personal lawyer yeah. who's also named Rudy Giuliani. Like they know, they know what the stakes are here. So they're not going to go out on a whim. And, and, you know, to your point, this doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be Rudy or that Rudy did something. Although I, I, I just, I'm speculating he probably did, Yeah, (laughs) but they're looking for something very specific that they believe is in that apartment that exists somewhere. They're going to get it. My strong, strong sense is they found it. They've yeah. got it in their hands now, and then we're going to start taking the next steps. But that is the danger of escalating these fights because we know what the Republican response is going to be. Donald Trump will be saying that while he's being handcuffed and doing the perp walk into prison. Is This is a political witch hunt. If you contribute $25 in the next email that I send out to give me some money, yeah. have a legal defense system, right? We, we know what he's going to do. We know, we've we know seen exactly this what before. Do. We know exactly what yeah. he's going to do. Yeah. So the burden yeah. of proof is not just the likelihood, which is what fortunately our legal standard rests on. It's even higher than that. And so when I see these actions being taken this quickly and hearing that they were turned back during the bar years and the Trump years, I'm pretty confident that these guys are on to something very significant and have very hard evidence knowing what the potential political blowback is going to be because if they were if they weren't locked solid on this stuff they'd let it go and move on to something else. So just to summarize by the way for our listeners Giuliani's legal exposure looks like this in 2019 two Giuliani associates Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman were indicted on campaign finance charges. Parnas and Fruman helped introduce Giuliani to Ukrainian officials, and they have pleaded not guilty. The election tech company Dominion sued Giuliani for defamation after he spread baseless conspiracy theories about election fraud. And finally, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, who is investigating Trump's efforts to influence Georgia's election results, is exploring whether Giuliani may have violated the law by making false statements about voting in Georgia in front of the state legislature, according to a person familiar with the investigation. That's a summary from CNN. Okay, let's talk about Trumpists. Speaking of accountability for Trump enablers, uh, there have been a number of, uh, shall we call them cast members from the previous administration um, who are emerging or re-emerging and seeking to whitewash and recast their roles in order to return to political life. These are folks whose sins against our country really should bar them from ever engaging in our politics again. But of course, they're lining up to rebrand themselves and claim a share of the post-president Trump Republican Party, whatever that is going to look like. So Brad Parscale, who had a spectacular rise and fall as the manager of the Trump re-election campaign, is reportedly advising Caitlyn Jenner on her bid to be the next Republican governor of California. 
Mike Pence has inked a two-book deal with Simon & Schuster, um, and there has been a petition demanding Simon & Schuster stop publishing books with former Trump administration officials. It had 216 signatures from inside the company, uh, as well as thousands from outside. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, $4.8 million she raised in her first quarter as a candidate, a record for money raised in a single quarter by any candidate in Arkansas history. So there's there's these stories are are proliferating. We're going to see more of them. Uh, we will keep talking about them as they come up. First, let's talk about Pence specifically. After four years as a Trump loyalist, Pence didn't bow to Trump's demands that he prevent the certification of Biden's election. Considering now the complications of Pence's legacy from Republican points of view, how is he going to rehabilitate his image, Mike? Or how is he trying to, anyway? Well, I think that the only way to do it is to just try to kind of ignore it and move forward, right? I mean, there's a what 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 still sh- shocks me, even though I've been in this business for 30 years, I know that's been a while, <laughs> is how shameless people are. In order to be, one of the keys to success in American politics is just pure shamelessness, no sense of self and no self-awareness. And that's what Mike Pence is doing. I mean, he, look, you can make the case that, you know, he, he didn't go forward with the insurrection or the, the overturning of the election. But like, if that's the standard, we're all screwed, right? If the vice president of the United States isn't going to stand up and do the right thing and worse, enabled the whole development of this 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 cancer on our body politic there's nothing virtuous there right there's there's zero virtue civic virtue in that so the fact that he's doing this means at a certain level and it's a deep level there is no sense of shame in this man and it's not just him it's it's the whole it's all of them yeah it's all it's of all them it's all the, right. the whole enabling class yeah. Yeah. even those that would spoke out quietly about Trump, but supported everything around him. It, there's a certain shamelessness that is required. And frankly, it's rewarded. Yeah. Uh, and and, and yeah. One, one of the things about this story that I really like, and we've talked about this on Politicology before, is the revolt of the employee base in these companies. Yes. That's what's going to stop it. There exactly. will be a market for a Pence book, but it's the employees of Simon and Schuster who are saying, I won't be complicit in this. I'm not going to work and be part of this. And to me, that's really, I think, uh, works so much better than boycotts or you know these other economic arguments or tools that were trying to change politics. It's when the employee base says we're not going to be a part of this. Um, I, I think that's that's very significant. But again, I, the short answer on Mike Pence is it's just pure crass shamelessness. Yeah, Liz. You know we've talked about uh, on recent episodes about this new trend, this new development of corporations exercising political speech outside of giving money, right? So they're making big decisions to, to stand up for things that especially their employee bases uh, want and, and believe in most, most, most notably the, you know, opposing anti-voting access bills that, that are, you know, working their ways through state legislatures around the country. Yep. What would you say to Simon & Schuster employees who don't want the company to publish books from Pence or any other Trump administration officials? Because this feels like it may fall in a bit of a gray area, right? A former vice president is expected to write memoirs. He's expected to publish autobiographies. That's what they do. Pence himself is the problem, right? Not the publisher. How do you think about this? And what would you say to those employees? 
This is a good one. It's tricky. And, and, uh, yeah. And, and super important. And I think the way that Mike said it makes, makes just so much sense, right? It's like, who is making um, a political difference in the world right now? And you're watching CEOs um, take stronger stances than elected officials, mm-hmm. which I think is so interesting and something that I think we've been um, witnessing in in small doses and certainly getting much bigger um, uh, in more recent times. But I think you saw as soon as Donald Trump became president, actually. So I think the business roundtable, I think either in 2017 or so, maybe it was in 2018, when they redid um, their mission statement, what is, the, what is the purpose of a corporation? And it talks about how you are to care about um, your stakeholders, I think, instead of your shareholders. So it was talking about, oh, it's not yeah. always about the bottom line. It's you're asking questions like, what are we doing for our employees, um, for our environment, for the families who rely on our product? And I think we saw that in the Trump era, because I think so many of these businesses did feel pressure uh, from their employees saying, what are we going to stand for in this new day and age? It's really interesting to me, even in coronavirus times, um, the way that uh, businesses have decided whether or not they are having in-person meetings or bringing their employees back to campus, like that's a political, Mm -hmm. it became a political decision. It wasn't just about science and health, but it was, what do we stand for? Who do we care about? And so I think we're seeing CEOs and businesses have to make decisions that usually fall to our elected officials. And so to that end, employees are the voters, right? And so you have to get your employees um, engaged and supportive of your uh, decisions that you're making. And so I'm really proud, um, I guess I'll say, of these employees. To your point, of course, Mike Pence is going to write a book. But the question is, do you reward bad behavior? Um, I think is a is a really important question. Um, but also, um, you know, the fact checking of what's going to go down in that book Um is that a worthwhile liability for this publishing company to take on? Because even the smallest uh, tweak of a sentence could, you know, really impact um, information or misinformation that that he's putting out there. So I think the liability is huge. Um, so that I would I would encourage any you know publisher to really take a look at. But I think it's amazing that the employees are saying, even if we don't. Um, make the a difference in a way that we want. So even if um, we don't get to to make a difference in the sense that the book will still be coming out, um, we at least want to exercise our right to raise our voices. And so to that end, um, extremely proud that that's where our country seems to to be going. I think that's really well articulated. This there's a lot of nuance here, and. Uh, I think I agree with you. I like. I feel. I feel proud of the employees for, for taking their own agency and said, like, this book's going to get published one way or the other, right? Right. Words right. are going to be read. It's whether or not we want to have a part in that, and I think that's what's so powerful about it. Um, and this, by the way, we should note is not a first amendment. It's not a free speech issue that has not, we've, we've mentioned this before, but the first amendment prevents the government from censoring people, not private companies. They, they have the ability to decide what they want to allow on their platforms. If you think of Simon & Schuster as a platform, right? There's nothing, uh, there's nothing potentially constitutionally problematic with them not publishing the book if they decide not to do that. So I just, I think it's, I think it's a new form of political activism and, um, and I'm 
candidly excited to see it. Generally speaking, Mike, we were adamant last year that these people, including Pascal and Sanders, have committed grave sins against our democracy and can't be accepted back into our political discourse. So, of course, here they all are, back to whitewash their own legacies and continue polluting our politics. Is there anything that we can do um, to stop them? Outside of the, the, the Pence example, maybe you can talk about Parscale and, and Caitlyn Jenner, uh, mm-hmm. what's going on in California, because is it going to break through? How are you thinking about the recall effort and, and, and Jenner's candidacy in general? And Pascal's, you know, yeah. alleged involvement, about, but yeah, go ahead. I was t- I was talking about just this topic for a long period of time yesterday with a political reporter because everyone's going. Uh-huh. It, it seemed it seemed like this this rollout fell with a kind of a complete dud in California, right? Nationally, it, it's a bigger story than it is in California. There's not a whole lot of resonance, and, and the answer to to that dynamic really, I think, speaks to the broader question, and that is this: I don't think Caitlyn Jenner's trying to win the governor's office. I think she's trying to remain relevant Hmm. and she's doing it in a very astute way, which is tapping into the Trump's need to remain relevant also. And Brad's need. And Brad's definitely, (laughs) right? And and look, and I, and I say this as a political practitioner and somebody who's very proud of my profession and my craft and my trade. Brad Parscale is not a political strategist. He may be a hell of a social media marketer, but he's not a political strategist. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was quantifiably proven, but if your objective of your client, which is Trump's, which is to remain relevant and have a platform, and relevance is really just as important to him as anything else, yeah. and Caitlyn Jenner has the same need, it's a perfect melding for both of these candidacies and campaigns. So what I see is happening is this quote-unquote celebrity dynamic in the recall is so unlike what we saw with Schwarzenegger for people that were here in 2003 watching that. It's so unlike the rise of a Ronald Reagan. In many ways, it's even different than what you saw with Donald Trump. This is not intended to work or affect or change the levers of government. This is using a platform at a moment in time to leverage relevance, which can then be monetized or further expounded upon. But both of these people, Donald Trump and and Caitlyn Jenner, have a need to be relevant, whatever it is inside of them that needs to have this relevance. And that's really what this is about. It's taking advantage of this opportunity in time. It's going to give Donald Trump the opportunity to come to California and probably raise money for for Donald Trump and his path. Yeah, yep, he won't that's raise, right. He's, he's not going to raise money for her. He's going it'll to raise be, money for it'll him. It'll be a joint fundraising agreement where yeah. they get the bottom like five percent of all the donations that come in, and he keeps the rest. That's what. Yeah, he's and, oh my and god. he just. Got, oh my god, he, you're so right. Right, that's how they're going to do it. That's exactly what yes. they're going to do, oh. and that's that is the perfect marketing opportunity for Donald Trump to go into California, raise national money. Uh, and stay relevant because that's the business they're in, and that's what this business yep. is. It, and and you know, then they'll they'll claim voter fraud or that we would have won the election if you know a bunch of undocumented immigrants hadn't voted here in California, or whatever they're going to say to kind of keep the the process going. Yeah, that's what this is about. It's not about governance. It's not even about being a legitimate campaign. It's utilizing those same tools to keep monetizing and keep relevant and keep the Trump name and brand going on social media. Liz, last question to you on this. Since we've seen all of this reporting that former Trump administration officials are having trouble landing private sector jobs, does this mean that we are doomed to see them all back in public life? Oh, man. That's like, that's a haunted question. Um, uh, Honestly, yes. Yes, I think I think yes, because they are going to realize this is a skill set 
that I have been able to trick enough people Mm. uh, into my having these skills, that I am a good public servant, that I know how to work on and run campaigns and run for office and do all these things. And I've been able to fool enough people into allowing me to to do this work. Look, when you were talking about... um, Pence and um, Huckabee Sanders. And when you were kind of giving the overview of this section, for me, what is most alarming is how much money the Sanders campaign has been able to raise in Arkansas. That is no small feat. And I think I read that two thirds of her donations have come from low dollar out of state donors. And that in and of itself should petrify everybody because it shows that the Trump brand is alive and well. I mean, Back even to the point about Tim Scott and bringing up Donald Trump in his rebuttal, it is still the party of Donald Trump. And we are reminded of that every single day. And that is petrifying. But I think um, to applaud the Biden admin, they're just putting their head down and moving forward and trying to um, really move on from the nightmare that was the last four years. But I don't know if that is percolating into, you know, everyday Americans who are still excited about an Arkansas gubernatorial race yeah, from across right. the country. And so that right. to me is the thing to look out for and the thing that is potentially scariest of all this. Agreed. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, last question to close us out. What stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or that our listeners might have missed? but are influencing our politics in some way we might not expect. Mike? Well, it's kind of the big story we started with, but there's a nuance to it. I do want to not miss the opportunity to talk about, and that is uh, Biden's address really focused on the threats to democracy that we face. And the fact that an American president is saying that in light of not just the insurrection, but the past four years really does signify a change in what is happening to the basic undergirdings of our democratic system. And I hope that it may, and I'm convinced that it will because it's true. They're really hitting on something that is central to this. And he did speak rather eloquently about it by saying, you know, even, and he put it in very, very non-confrontational terms with President Xi in China by saying, that is the threat. We are in a race for the next century of who and what type of government is going to work in this new age. And he so accurately articulated the idea that autocrats do not believe democracy can work and thrive in this environment. And there is a hell of a lot of evidence to suggest that they are right, including the last president of the United States. Yeah. So, so look, it's not a story that's going to unfold tomorrow. It's an un- it's a story that's going to unfold out over the next couple of decades. And to see whether or not American-style democracy can survive is going to be central to what happens during not just the Biden administration, but subsequent administrations. And I'm bringing this up only because it is so consequential that an American president had to make the case that if we aren't successful democracy that we know it will not exist and he did it did it you know masterfully by not scaring people but putting it out on the table is those are the stakes folks what we were talking about with the work in the Lincoln project and the rise of Donald Trump and now as we're able to look backwards and assess kind of what was happening and really deeply examining some of the undergirdings of democracy we are also going to begin to face external threats from autocrats who view our system of government as a weakness. And again, 
we have to be sober and, and open-minded about the idea that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that they are correct. So without frightening people, we have to be mindful of this because it is not going away. The external threat to democracy is a yeah. very real one. And the limiting of democracies abroad is going to limit our capacity to ally with others who have a same worldview as we do. And I would argue we are in a very, very weak moment. Uh, democracy stands at a very weak moment in human history. It's not just because of the rise of despots and autocrats, but it's the social and technological dynamics which have allowed them to take place in the first place. And it's the attacks from within that are most stymieing are the, I think one of the best lines that he had was that the the, the the sacrosanct right to vote that we have to protect it in this country. You know, who didn't applause Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham yeah. sat there with his arms folded. Yeah. Just, yeah, that's anyway, you're Mike, what you're talking about is, is the undercurrent beneath everything that we're talking about. And it's very it really real. Is. Like I said, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that, you know, it's, it's not just a news story for today. I'm mentioning it yeah. only because the president addressed it directly. The yeah. president of the United States deal. addressed it. But it is really what I think politicology is about, what the Lincoln Project was a, a, a foundationally about. And it is what we must remain vigilant if, if we believe that this idea of America is worth um, continuing and I, I, I don't. I don't mean that dismissively, and I'm not trying to be too hyperbolic about this. There is a lot of evidence that democracies are not going to work in an era and a time when things are moving as quickly as they can, and, and not just technologically. Look what just happened with the coronavirus. A lot of autocratic governments just shut down their economies and limited the spread and the damage of the disease at a time when we couldn't even figure out or come to terms with whether there was a disease or not. Yeah, politically. Yeah. Yeah. And those types of threats are going to make it uh, us a very slow-moving, bureaucratic, cumbersome project, which is what America was designed to be. We were preventing fast-moving autocratic governments as a way to allow for greater stakeholder buy-in. Are we still at a moment in time in human history where that system of government works? There's a, it's, oh, a, it's, a, it's a real debate. It's a real, it's a real good debate. It's such yeah. a good debate. At at risk of belaboring the point, I remember a conversation we had on the podcast um, last summertime. I'm not sure who was on, but I raised the, the the question about sort of the contrast between and whether or not American individualism was had essentially become a liability, at least vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis coronavirus response, because yeah. because we don't and and how, how how China had moved so quickly to address the problem, and a lot of Asian countries did because they have this culture of collectivism, of collective action. Uh, of of essentially we're all in this together. Now that's no endorsement of their governments of the government structures, but it was on display for the world to see that um, that one of the one of the hallmarks of the design of American democracy is is its slow moving and individualistic nature, and that actually posed a big problem for us in in our response. I mean, we had a guy who didn't believe that science was real in the White House, but um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I know this is Mike's story, but feel free to weigh in, Liz. No, no, it's great. I was going to say, always leave it to Mike to like really, you know, when you ask what <laughs> yeah. are we following, it's like, here's like the real yeah. here's underpinning the of like really everything. Yep. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yep. No, so for me, um, yeah. two things that are that are a little bit, um, let's call them more surface level if we're calling uh, Mike's uh, <laughs> deep thoughts. Um, so I think for me, uh, back to the speech last night, um, Again, I think he did a great job, but what will this look like on the Hill? 
And so really following the um, reactions and responses from all of the different members of Congress, um, I know all of them matter, but the ones who are really going to be the swingiest of all votes, um, you know, will some of these um, reforms and measures get passed? It's based on a handful of people. That's it. I mean, you don't need to know how all senators and all uh, members are feeling about this speech and, and you know, these propositions. Um, you Anyone really... in particular you're watching? Well, I I should have known before before bringing this up. <laughs> I think it's I mean I think it's all of our all of our swing senators. I think every single one of them, um, you know, that you want to say they are, um, you know, are are folks who lean the most and the folks who honestly have the most to to gain here because you will see um, whether or not negotiating power on the Hill is alive and well, or if the Biden administration is saying, no, we're cutting that shit out and we're, you know, going to like, we're, we're pushing these things through and you're either with us or you're not with us. I don't know that he has that kind of leverage right now. So for me, um, that is what I'm very excited to watch. And then, um, you know, as the, as the political animal, that's the, that's yeah. the, that's the cool yeah. part. Um, and then also to the, to the COVID piece, understanding, um, with relaxed CDC guidelines, also looking at what is happening in India, really understanding where is this disease going? Um, what does it mean for, you know, summer plans right around the corner and folks who are getting vaccinated? And again, I think the, the amount of doses has been really amazing and a, and a crown, crowning achievement, let's call it, um, yeah. of these first 100 days. But, you know, there's really no way to know um, if you are around people who are vaccinated or not. And so with these more relaxed guidelines, what does this mean for folks coming out of hibernation? And what is this going to look like for our country? And then more globally, looking at what is going on um, with this pandemic around the world and paying close attention to what's happening in India, for sure. Before I let you go, where can people find you on the internet, Liz? Oh, so I am I am on Twitter um, underscore uh, Liz Gilbert. That is where underscore I am. Liz Gilbert. Mike, you can find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology You can also help us by reading and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Politicology Pod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.